Our reading from God's holy word this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told him the dream, and I told the dream before him, saying, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking. And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts go out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. 
So the king spoke and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And and inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop the tree down and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him gaze up with graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking around the royal palace of Babylon, The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. This is the word of the Lord. You didn't build that, he said. It was several years ago and a couple of presidents ago, but the speech was in many ways kind of a watershed of the man's presidency and is still remembered to this day. You didn't build that. You put your hand out to establish a business or some sort of entity on earth. You have begun some sort of work that is an ongoing concern. You didn't build that. There is, in a way, some truth to his words if they are examined in a vacuum. The truth is, as we assemble today in the Lord's uh, presence, we have assembled quite a number of people who have built things and done things and accomplished things. But knowing you as I do, I know that if you were to be asked, are you truly a self-made person? Have you truly by your own hand accomplished everything you've accomplished? You would tell me no. And you would be right, because we don't live in a vacuum. The truth is, a truly self-made man, a truly self-sufficient man, is at least a great rarity, if not a mythology. But that wasn't exactly what he was talking about. Underneath this, by the way, there is a spiritual truth that his words in a vacuum could testify to. When the Apostle Paul was upbraiding the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, the Apostle asked them, saying, Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Who, of course, is the apostle talking about? Well, the answer is obvious. He is talking about your creator, and he is asking you to examine your life and to look at all the elements of your life and to figure out just exactly what part of you God didn't create. And the answer, of course, to that is, of you, nothing. Sin is sort of a no thing. God did not create your sin but beyond that, everything you have, everything positive, everything good, every gift, every opportunity, every, every element of what makes you you, that was given from heaven. God gave it to you, and Paul says, there's literally nothing you can boast about because God gave you everything. If you've built anything, it comes out of what God gave you. 
even the very fact that you can build things comes out of the fact you live in God's natural law, in God's world. You didn't build that. From that point of view, the words are correct. But as I said, that's really not what he was meaning. When he looked us all in the eye and said, you didn't build that, who was he saying built that? What was the purpose of the speech? Well, if you remember, uh, he had a definite objective in mind. He wanted you to believe that, quite frankly, government built that. You didn't establish your business, you didn't establish your trucking, you didn't uh, develop your land without the hand of the government, and the government did that. You had a hand, you know, but you didn't do it by yourself. You didn't really do that. The government did that. If that's what he means, who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. He is the head of the American government at this moment. He is talking about himself and his predecessors. And he is looking at everything that has been developed in America. He is looking at all the great monuments and businesses and technologies and social development. And he's saying, you didn't build that. I built that. I'm the ruler I'm the one that provides law and order. I'm the one that allowed you to build that. So, really, I built that. I did it. Not, not you, it was me. I think God might view that differently. But I know a man who at least at one time would have applauded that speech and said, Amen. And that man is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. As we begin our uh, looking at this part of the Bible, which was penned by the king of Babylon, penned by a non-Jew, a Babylonian, and has been incorporated by God's Spirit into our Bible, as we begin to look at him, he would have said, Amen. And if any man in the ancient world had a right to amen that speech, it would in fact be him. Let us consider who he is as we begin our account. He has successfully led to the overthrow of mighty Assyria. For 250 years, while Assyria has not been the only power on the block, It has been the ancient world's equivalent of Nazi Germany. It has been the most foul and despicable of powers on earth. And it has, for centuries, uh, had Babylon as its slave. But Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, overthrew such mighty tyrants and drove them into extinction. He would absolutely destroy the Assyrian Empire, and he would, for the first time in human history, at least recorded human history, establish a world power that had to be considered the world power. Assyria had always had to 
contest with the remainders of the Hittite kings and the, the pharaoh of Egypt. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really contend with anyone. He has risen to the heights. He is the ruler of all the known world. He can look at that and in his heart say to him, I did that. That was me. His city of Babylon at this time is considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. Of course, at this time, it's the modern ancient, the modern wonders of the world. But mighty Babylon is known far and wide for its architecture, its might, its glory. It's known for the hanging gardens that men the world over write about with awe. Who oversaw the building of the city? He did. He did that. And he brought order. He brought rule. As we begin this dream, which we are told is about King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it is significant that verse 11 and 12 say this. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. This is the description of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which God has given him to describe him, He is a mighty tree under which all the earth is finding sustenance. He is actually establishing a time period in history where there's been overwhelming bloodshed and the destruction of the ancient world, but he has put forth his hand and he has reached into the disorder that he has caused, and by the might of his arm, he is reshaping it into order and prosperity And everyone is benefiting from that to the point where they are positive about that. He can look at that and say, I did that. You didn't do that. I I did that. I'm King Nebuchadnezzar. I I have brought order to the world, and it's my world. I have stretched forth my sword. I have led my armies. I have built an army that has conquered the world. I did that. If any man could amen Obama's speech, it'd be King Nebuchadnezzar. It would certainly have fit the national character that Nebuchadnezzar embodied. Another prophet prophesying about his great achievements, Habakkuk the prophet, was told this about the Babylonians, chapter 1 of Habakkuk, beginning at verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Now think about what the prophet is saying here. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. 
He's talking about the national character of the Babylonians. They have a culture where personal achievement, personal glory, uh, that's what's honored. That's what's dignified. That's who they are. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Now, verse 11 is interesting. The way I have read it in the New King James is a, a, a possible way to translate it. The prophet says that these Babylonians will ultimately transgress the law of God because they will ascribe to their God their victory. And, and it, it, it's possible to translate it that way. It is, however, possible to translate it as you find in the 1984 NIV, which reads as follows in verse 11. That's the wrong book. Uh, Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. Again, if you look at the Hebrew... Either translation into English could be the legitimate translation. And the NIV has gone with a thought that is, is compatible with the portion of the reading that I stopped and kind of elaborated on. Uh, who do the Babylonians actually worship? Where do they give their religious devotion? The truth is, at this time in Babylonia, there are many religious cults. There are very many religions a Babylonian could be dedicated to. But who do they really worship? Who do they really hold as their greatest good? What is the focus of their religion? Well, if you go with the NIV reading, which I tend to lean towards, really the Babylonian worships himself. And so if you're King Nebuchadnezzar, and you've just literally conquered the earth, and you built Babylon from the foundations, it's not that surprising that you're walking around the palace going, I did that. You didn't do that. I did that. I built this. Uh, it's perfectly natural. It, it, fits, it fits his culture. The only problem is that um, God is of a different opinion. And our entire long account of what has taken place here kind of hinges on verse 17. Verse 17 is the punchline. Verse 17 is what Nebuchadnezzar wants you to walk away understanding. It's what the Holy Spirit wants you to walk away understanding. And verse 17 reads as follows. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones In order that the living, so that's everybody. Are you living? Well, this is for you. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, 
gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. So when a human ruler looks you in the eye and says, you didn't do that, uh, you should think, you're right. The Lord God has given me all things, and he has given me other people. The Lord God has given me the days of my life and the situation of my life. There is nothing that doesn't come from God. He did that. But when a ruler looks you in the eye and says, you didn't do that, I did that, it turns out God has a pretty strong opinion about that kind of message, and uh, he's not very gentlemanly. What do we see in verse 17? Well, we see that God is Lord of all nations. He is Lord of what happens in them. He raises up one. He puts down another. There is no exception to this. And the entirety of everything we read about from Nebuchadnezzar's pen points to that truth. Where did the dream come from? Well, the passage clearly says God. God sent a dream to pagan Nebuchadnezzar to speak his word and his way. Why is Daniel here? What role does the prophet play? Well, God has spoken and God will be interpreted by God's uh, messenger. All the Chaldeans and soothsayers and magicians... They learned their lesson back in chapter 2, and they're keeping their mouth closed. But Daniel speaks because this is of God. And even Nebuchadnezzar, at the beginning of our account, has to say, the spirit of the holy God dwells in him. Now, at the beginning of our account, the holy God is one spiritual option for Nebuchadnezzar among many. In fact, as he introduces Daniel... He says, now, his name's Daniel, but we called him Belshazzar after the name of my God. If you, if you look at the verse that I'm quoting, the, the word that suggests a time signature has been implied, supplied. It's in, in italics in the, in the English. <clears throat> There's not exactly a... Uh, a verbal tense here to say that this is either Nebuchadnezzar's God or it was his God. And the way this plays out, it probably should have been translated better, who was my God? Because at the end of this, who is Nebuchadnezzar's God? Well, it's very clearly God. But he, he introduces Daniel and says, we named him after my God, but he has the spirit of the holy God in him. <clears throat> and this is the God talking to me. Nebuchadnezzar falls. <coughs> Why does God do that? Well, God specifically says, I'm going to knock you down because I'm going to tell to all the living on earth, I rule over everything. I am the sovereign God. I am the God who controls every element of all reality. I create, I sustain, I destroy, I give the times and seasons. That's me. And If the fall of the most powerful man on earth doesn't show that, I don't know what will. So the most self-made man is brought to nothing. 
He is given the heart of an animal. Why is he given the heart of an animal? As you know, uh, your pastor is an animal lover. I, I really enjoy animals. But biblically, the, the kind of adoration of animals that our culture has given itself to really isn't there. Biblically, animals are given to men to be shepherded by, but also to be used. They are well below men. They are uh, much more of the earth than we are, and um, men use them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he uses the whole world. He thinks that he is the man, and everybody else is the animal to be moved around by him, God gives him the heart of an animal. God gives him the heart of an animal. He is being told, you are to me like an animal. I will use you to my desire. I will shear your wool. I will drain your milk. I will do with you as I please. Because that's what men do with animals, and that's what you are to me. For seven years, King Nebuchadnezzar will be mad. And just as uh, an aside, it turns out that uh, the world of psychiatry actually acknowledges this phenomenon. There are people who, for whatever reason, develop the uh, delusion that they are cattle and they'll eat grass. I didn't know that until I was studying this. Kind of interesting. But the madness came from God... And for seven years, the greatest man on earth who would have said, I did that, now doesn't say anything at all. He lows in the field. He moves like a cow. He has not a human thought in his head. He eats the grass, and it's for seven years. This looks total and complete. This was uh, foundation-shaking for Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's son would step into his rule to hold the place for his father. But as years roll by, you know that people are saying to themselves, this is the end, this is done. Um, He was mad last year, he's mad this year, it's been four years, I'm pretty sure this is the way things are going to be. It looks totally hopeless and helpless And it is, unless God does something, which is the message God is giving. I bring up, I put down, I bring back up again if I want to, and I do it seven years later if I want to do it. There is nothing hopeless when I'm involved because I rule. I am the sovereign God. No man rules. I do. Seven years later, Nebuchadnezzar is restored. Can Nebuchadnezzar look you in the eye and say, I did that. You didn't do that. I did that. Can he do this now? The answer is no. Who can restore sanity? The answer is only God. Counselors, psychiatrists, and psychologists, they may be used of God, but who gives you your human thoughts? God does. Who, uh, in his providence, 
brings madness. God does. And if anyone is going to be healed of mental affliction, who really is going to do that? Well, God. He's the only one. And so God looks at the most prideful and arrogant man on earth and says, I did that. I put you up. I brought you down. I brought you back again. I have done all this. I have done that. I established kings. I established their times. And not only that, we're not quite done with verse 17. The last line of verse 17 is utterly amazing. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. The lowest of men. We live in a culture where if somebody has risen to the top and he is the ruler, we assume he is very talented and gifted, that that he has had a type A personality and he has clawed his way to the top, and we have to at least kind of tip our hat and say, well, there's talent. That doesn't seem to be how God views human rulers. He says, when I set up human rulers, you know who I pick to rule over men? It's the lowest of men. The King James Version uses the term basest. And actually, for uh, literalness' sake, the King James hits on the money here. Because the Aramaic word that is used is almost always not a compliment. To be abased, it has as its root meaning to be controlled. And it's usually used of men who can't control themselves because they're controlled by their passions. They are, are uh, locked into unthinking, non-wise passions. Now, there is occasionally a slightly different use of the term, but that is the majority use of the term. We're going to see the word again at the end of the chapter in just a slightly modified form, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to return to verse 17 in our memory. But when we first read it and we hear God say, I set over men the most basest of men, our initial understanding of that is going to be God sets over us men who are non-thinking slaves of their passions. And that does seem to be exactly who rules among men, right? I mean, let's be honest. That's who tends to be in rulership. So when God sets up a king, almost all of the time, is he doing you a favor or not? Well, according to uh, the watchers, who are God's angels, and who are the administrators of his bureaucracy because he is king, according to them, most of the time not. When a king is set up by God, he is giving you a hard time. And we've already seen this. We've gone through 1 Samuel 8, where really kind of the definitive biblical uh, statement on human government is given We want a king like all the other nations. Fine, let me tell you what kings are like. They are really base people. 
they will take from you and they will give to them. And that's all they'll do. That's really what they do. And here, the angels say, that's what God's doing. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to understand that from heaven's point of view, you are kind of God's hand to punish man. You are not the best of men. You're the worst of men. And he has put you where you are because you're the worst of man, because God has a contention with mankind. And you are part of the curse. You are part of the suffering. You are part of the misery of this world. That's what God tends to do when he raises a king up. God is really the king, and the watchers are always watching. Here we see the angels. Most of the time in Scripture, we don't see them. But Scripture assumes they're there, and God is working through them. An interesting thing about that term, by the way, the watchers, it's a term that doesn't really show up when covenant people talk about angels. Now, the way we talk about them doesn't preclude the term, but generally when you read about angels in Scripture, they're called seraphim or cherubim. Uh, They might be talked about angels and archangels. They're given the term servant. But it's not really covenant people who use the term watcher. That's actually a Babylonian term for angels. They believed in angels, and they called them the watchers. If this book had been written as a, uh, as a second century B.C. book of propaganda, which liberals believe it to be, There is absolutely no way that a Jew writing under the Greeks would have gotten right to call the angels what Babylonians call them. There's just no way that would have happened. But Nebuchadnezzar uses language he's familiar with. He calls them the watchers. And that is a title that they're they're given because of this chapter. The angels are always watching. There is nothing that God's administration, God's rule, doesn't know about. The angels are there, they're doing God's will, and for God's glory, they have brought Nebuchadnezzar down because God reigns, and men need to know that. They need to know that he is sovereign. That is what Nebuchadnezzar wants you to take away from this passage. That is the main thrust of it. But there is a thing or two else we need to look at. This is not only the account of uh, a sign and a wonder which shows God's sovereignty over all things. It's also the account of a man being converted. Nebuchadnezzar is a human being, and at the beginning of this account, like a good Babylonian, he trusts in himself. He's not presented here in that negative of light. When Daniel talks to him and he says, Oh, king, I really wish this wasn't about you. I wish it was about your enemies. While Daniel is talking politely because he's at court, it's hard not to hear in his voice that he has actually developed some affection for this man. And when Nebuchadnezzar talks to him, uh, you hear that same sort of affection. He doesn't, 
seem to be that bad of a guy at this moment in this light, but he is an unconverted man, and he trusts in himself. He defines reality by his God, as he talks about Daniel being named for his God. He sees the holy God, the wise God, the God who has been messing with him since chapter 2, really, as a spiritual option, but one that he doesn't really have to embrace. And there is, in the words of the New Testament and the Psalms, no fear of God before his eyes. Which is really very strange, because in chapter 2, God has demonstrated to Nebuchadnezzar that God can look directly into his heart. And again, in chapter 2, he has demonstrated that he is the Lord of history and going to bring about various empires, and there's nothing men can do about it. In chapter 3, he has demonstrated that if he wants to, he can keep men from being burned alive in horribly fiery furnaces, and the only thing that human beings can do is lose their best men trying to thwart God, which doesn't happen. So if Nebuchadnezzar had sanity he would at this point have fear of God before his eyes. But unconverted people are drain-bamaged. Actually, I've said that phrase so much, I can't say the regular one without really thinking about it. Uh, The joke is too strong. But uh, as, as Reformed Christians, we know that mankind is not only lacking before God in holiness and righteousness, we are literally lacking in the way we think. And Nebuchadnezzar, at the beginning of this account, doesn't have any fear of God, which is insane. But that's where he is, because that's where unconverted people are. And like another rather insane person, Saul of Tarsus, God smacks him down, literally. God is not gentlemanly to him at all. Over in evangelicalism, there is a phrase that you will hear a lot, and I heard it a lot when I pastored a Presbyterian church that had a very unpresbyterian elder. Uh, God is a gentleman. God would never impose himself on men because God is gentlemanly. I've never met this gentlemanly God. If he exists, he's not part of my experience. Ask Nebuchadnezzar how gentlemanly God is. Did God ask permission before he drove Nebuchadnezzar insane? Did God ask permission before he raised him up? God did not ask permission before he knocked him down. God is no gentleman. God will not ask your opinion about what he is going to do. God will not respect your wishes. In fact, you better pray to God he doesn't respect your wishes Because your wishes are going to be ungodly, and if God respects those, you're going to go to a godless hell. God is in no way a gentleman. God goes where he wants, he does what he wants, he takes hold of who he wants, and God slaps Nebuchadnezzar down like he slapped down Paul, and just like Paul, conversion came after he got the slap down. At the beginning of our account, Nebuchadnezzar really trusts in himself and thinks he is a mighty guy. At the end of this account, Nebuchadnezzar says, the entirety of the earth is accounted as nothing before God. He does what he wills with everybody in the armies in heaven, and he does what he will with every inhabitant on the earth. 
That's an amazing place for the most powerful man on earth to go. He established the first world power. He established the foundation of our own age. And yet, at the end of this chapter, he knows before God he is nothing. His life is like smoke. He is meaningless before the presence of God. Only God can give meaning, and only God's rule is eternal. God is sovereign. And he can't get there until he is slapped down. And he thanks and praises and extols the Lord who has slapped him down. That is the way the passage ends. At the end of the passage, he's been mad for seven years. He looks like a bird. He acts like a a cow. But God, in bringing him to ruin, has shown him grace. And the first thing a converted man does is give praise and thanks and glory to God. Oftentimes, for the very things that have brought him to ruin, because what has brought him to ruin has brought him to God. That is exactly what you see here. Do you want God to be gracious to you? Be careful, because that may mean God will blow away literally everything in your life. But it is the grace of God. As God tears down you, he tears down your greatest idol. As God levels you, he begins the possibility of building you into something that he will give meaning to. That's what grace actually looks like. And at the beginning of our chapter, uh, Nebuchadnezzar uses two words that we should be familiar with since last week I talked about them. He says, I want to tell you about God's signs and his wonders. A sign is a miracle where God says something, and a wonder is where he stops you in your tracks and makes you listen. And that is exactly what has happened. This is what conversion looks like. It is the absolutely rude God who does not respect your personal space at all, getting in your face, throwing you to the dust, crumbling everything you might trust in and bringing you to himself and stopping you in your tracks and talking to you while you can't refuse to listen. And Nebuchadnezzar is a saved man. He trusts in God. God is the true ruler for him at the end of this, and that is part of saving faith. Saving faith is faith in the real God. Who is the real God? He is the God who controls literally every atom moving around this room. And Nebuchadnezzar cannot miss that now. If you were an atheist, right now you would be thinking, likely, this is why I hate God. I don't believe in him, but I absolutely hate him. And why do I hate him? It is because God will pass over really pretty decent people and he will offer his salvation to the most based and wickedest of men. I'm an atheist and I hate God because I know there have been mass murderers who have 
quote, found Jesus, quote, in, j- in jail. And if the Christians are right, that black-hearted murderer is going to go to heaven where, you know, I'm a nice guy and I contribute to the Audubon Club. I'm going to go to hell, but he's going to let the son of Sam in. What kind of God does that, you would think to yourself? Because that's actually what they type on websites and say when they're interviewed. Well, I have an answer for them. It's the God of grace. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is pretty much the basest of men. We're told that God puts the basis of men in power, and he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. That's not a compliment. Nebuchadnezzar is selfish. Nebuchadnezzar is capricious. Nebuchadnezzar is bloodthirsty. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people dead at this point because of Nebuchadnezzar's actions. But God doesn't save men on the basis of whether they're pretty good or not. He saves utterly dead men who, in comparison to one another, might be pretty good, but from the eyes of heaven are just absolutely dead and totally equal in their deadness, and God saves whom he wills. A Gandhi who does some nice things goes to hell because he doesn't have Christ and he doesn't trust in God. A Manasseh, who is the worst king in all of Israel history, who has filled Jerusalem with blood, goes to heaven because God gives him faith. The kind of God that does that is a gracious God. And the fact is, if you are a saved person, God has shown just as much grace to you as he has shown to the Nebuchadnezzars of the world. Because when you stand in comparison to them, you can say, you know, I'm, I'm really a lot better than a mass murderer. And from a human point of view, sure, but from the perspective of heaven, it equates as nothing. Honestly, he can see our hearts. For believers, this is not something to hate God over. This is actually one of the most profound and heart-moving truths that you can absolutely lay hold of. Returning to the Apostle Paul again, Paul writes of this truth when he writes to Timothy in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, and he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. C.S. Lewis pointed out that whenever he spent time with godly converted people, uh, they constantly told him how sinful they were. And when he spent time with totally non-spiritual people, they spent all the time telling him how basically pretty good they were. The truth is, in the light of God, you see yourself for what you are, and the difference between you and a Nebuchadnezzar are nil, basically, from God's point of view. So, uh, do you want a God who will save the son of Sam after all of his crimes? You better, because that's the only God that will save you. 
And Nebuchadnezzar stands as a testimony to God's willingness to save anybody he darn well wants. Because we would not have expected it. At the end of his account, when he is giving praise to the God who has saved him, uh, his last line reads as follows. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. Now that word put down, if you were to go to the Aramaic, you will find it's just a slight linguistic reworking of the word based. When God says, I put the basest of men in power, and it's not a compliment, Nebuchadnezzar turns the word around at the end of the story and says, you know, I wouldn't be a saved man if God hadn't debased me. But what is, what is the essence of the word? The essence of the word is somebody who is controlled from outside. Usually it's controlled by their passions, their pleasures, their sinful desires. But Nebuchadnezzar now says, I'm a different man. I'm controlled from outside. And in fact, the God of heaven is able to grab hold of and to put his, his meat hooks into the most powerful and prideful of men and bring them to the earth because that's where salvation is. It would seem that human beings, just in general, tend to be debased. The question is, uh, what's debasing us? Are we controlled by sin and depravity, controlled by the devil, controlled by our lusts, controlled by our petty angers? Or are we controlled by the Spirit of God, who Nebuchadnezzar had to acknowledge was in Daniel, the Spirit of the Holy God is in you, uh, who has laid hold of you? Self-control is a fruit of what? Not the self, although it's called self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And so at the end of this story, Nebuchadnezzar says a very profound thing about a saved person. He acknowledges the rule of God and is grateful for it and acknowledges that he can't escape it. That is the very essence of salvation. And if it's true for Nebuchadnezzar... It's true for you. Because nobody looks at God and says, I did that. God takes it really, really personal.